Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. How have you been? I've been well, Jana. It's the uh, getting towards the end of the year. A lot going on in the world. Yeah, and the end of the semester here at Bard and a little busy But we're Absolutely. back this week with another reading of Hannah Arendt. <laughs> it always gives us a little bit of time to pause and reflect. So it's a nice part of, it's a nice ritual in our, in our week. It really is. You will be discussing chapter nine, the decline of the nation state and the end of the rights of man. And this is the last chapter in part two on imperialism. We will hear about the two elements of the nation state and its decline after World War I and how the nation conquered the state, about minority treaties and the danger of stateless refugees and the right to have rights, one of Arendt's most famous lines and demands. So since this is the chapter, it's a chapter that's a key chapter in the book and also for Arendt's writing and thinking in the next years and decades. And since we're closing part two with it, could we zoom out and could you just summarize her a couple key takeaways from this second part of the three-part book for us? Yes, I'll, I'll try. It's a long part. It goes from about a page 100 and 110 or so all the way to page 300. So it's, in many ways, the imperialism chapter of the book is is the key to the book and 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 the core of the book. The basic idea of imperialism as she says early on, is expansion, both the expansion geographically and physically beyond a nation state, but also ideologically. The idea that a group like the Pan-Germans or the Pan-Slavs, as she talks about in chapter eight, want to imagine not a geographically limited Germany or Russia, but one that includes Germans and Russians all over the world. And so it expands out to include a kind of tribal consciousness, a pseudo-mystical tribal consciousness, as she talks about in, in chapter eight. There's also the, the way in which the bourgeoisie, where a particular class, which is a class that doesn't have much political interest because its primary interest is in growing its economic and personal security, finds that in order to keep growing that personal and economic security, it needs colonialism or imperialism. It needs to 
find new markets for its goods, but also new raw materials for its goods outside of the nation state. And so since the basic law of economics is one of growth, you always have to grow in order to keep your, your, your businesses in power. While as the basic law of politics is actually one of stability, where you have to keep a stabilized local nation state, the bourgeoisie pushes and forces the breakdown of the nation state into uh, an expansion and, and the idea of imperialism. Finally, race. Again, the nation state is not a race concept. It's about treating all people within a state equally. Race concepts and race thinkers are generally deeply anti-nationalist because they push out again towards tribal mystical consciousness and try and bring in people who are of our race, who are outside the borders of the state, but also citizens who are in the state, they may try and denaturalize them and expel them or kick them out. And so the bourgeoisie, racists, race thinking, and sort of tribal, pan-Slavic, pan-German tribalists are all part of this idea of imperialism. The final threat of that is that as the nation-state system breaks down under this weight of the fact that all these imperialist movements are are forcing into impossible uh, circumstances, the nation-state begins to break down and we create a new globalized population, which she calls refugees or stateless people, which again force apart the the sort of nation state system and move us towards national international and imperialist uh, ways of thinking. So all of these are ways in which imperialism challenges and breaks down the nation state, which is supposed to be a limited geographical rights-based entity and opens the door to to the idea that politics becomes about infinite growth and not about stability and freedom. And and that move of politics towards growth, that it has to be a movement, that it has to constantly grow and move and inspire its people to be on the march, as we say, is part of what is going to be central to the actual way that totalitarianism operates, which we'll explore in part three on totalitarianism itself. Thank you, Roger. There is a controversy uh, going on right now uh, around the Hannah Arendt Prize, which is funded by the Heinrich Böll Foundation and should have been awarded to Masha Gessen tonight, who is also a colleague here at Bard. And so I wanted to take this opportunity to ask you, um, do we know what's going on and and what happened? And um, what do you think would have Hannah Arendt, what would she would have said? Yeah. Well, I, I don't. I don't speak for Han Arendt. I, uh, it's a rule. But yes, I mean, this is very. Let, let's just let me first say two things. One is I don't know all the facts. From what I can tell, the facts are 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 still contested. But to the extent that at least some people in the Heinrich Böll Stiftung, uh, the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Uh, by the way, the Heinrich Böll Foundation has different seats in Germany. And so the Heinrich Böll Stiftung in Bremen, which is a, a free state in northern Germany, uh, which has traditionally given the money for this prize and supported the prize, at least reportedly, although they have publicly denied this, and I don't know exactly how to understand it, has said that they are going to refuse to give the prize to Masha Gessen, which was announced months ago and which she was supposed to receive December 15th 
tonight uh, when we're talking, which is, I think, a few days before this podcast be released. Apparently, they never even contacted Masha Gessen about this. There's been a lot of confusion. My my understanding is that there will still be a ceremony awarding uh, Masha Gessen this prize, as there should be. There's There's absolutely no reason to decide not to give a prize to someone after it's been announced you're giving them the prize. And I'm very grateful that the Han Arendt Prize will be given to Masha Gessen tonight in Bremen at a ceremony. It will not be where the prize is usually given uh, at the Bremen Rathaus, which is a gorgeous building. As as you know, Jana, I, I received this prize four years ago there, and it was a beautiful ceremony. And I am uh, really saddened, deeply saddened, that Masha will not get the prize there because I think it's a, a special place. But I am glad that there will be a ceremony. She will be given the prize. There's a cash prize that goes along with the prize, which is funded by the Heinrich Bohr Stiftung in Bremen. It's unclear to me what's going to happen, but I've been told that the Heinrich Bohr Stiftung in Berlin, uh, at the very least, will guarantee the prize. And that maybe even the Heinrich Bohr Stiftung in Bremen has been shamed into giving the prize as well. Like I said, I don't know all the facts. I don't want to speak out of turn. All I can say is this. The choice of who gets the Hannah Arendt Prize is 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 somewhat mercurial. It's based on a committee. I have never been on the committee. I was chosen by them once. I'm very grateful for that. The choice of Masha Gessen was made, and the Heinrich Bull Stiftung is supposed to fund it and support it, and they should. There's simply no reason not to. The fact that Masha wrote an article in The New Yorker this week or last week in which they said some things that are controversial, you know, it doesn't change anything. One can agree or disagree with what Masha said in that article. Nothing that Masha said in that article is beyond the pale of, 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 of respectable discourse, even close to it. And I fully support them getting this prize. And I am heartened that the community who gives the prize is standing up for that principle of, you know, plurality and free engagement, and even under uh, some pressure, is continuing to act and uh, present Masha Gessen with the Hannah Rent Prize as she is supposed to and should receive it tonight, Friday the 15th in Bremen. Uh, it will be at a separate private place, and that's too bad. Before we head into our chapter reading, I just want to point out that we are about to head into a little winter break. So this is a great time if you've missed an episode to listen to our chapter so far. And then we will be back in mid-January with our next chapter, chapter 10. Thank you, Roger. So welcome, everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. And welcome to the virtual reading group where we're continuing to read Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. And we are going to finish today the second part of the book on imperialism. I've said it before. I'll say it probably many more times. This, in many ways, is the key to the book, the imperialism chapter, insofar as the book is an attempt to articulate the origins of totalitarianism. 
You know, the first chapter, first book is on anti-Semitism, which is important, but in Aaron's view, not central, but it's not to be ignored. But the real, if you understand that she's looking for what she calls the elements that crystallize into totalitarianism, not one cause, but the elements, you'll see that most of them are articulated in the section on imperialism. And at this point, you know, it's a good exercise for yourself to try and think about what those elements are, right? She never lists them all. I mean, the time she lists some, the changes, but it includes the political emancipation of the bourgeoisie. It includes the rise of imperialism itself and the idea of expansion. It includes power replacing reason in that Habesian sense. It includes the invention of race. And even more importantly, the invention of bureaucracy and and bureaucratic rule on the foundation of race throughout the world. It includes pan-Germanism and pan-Slavism and thus the idea of a movement and the rise of ideological movements. And above all, I think, if we have to ask ourselves what are you know some of these elements, one of the most important ones, two of the most important, are, are articulated here in, in chapter nine, and they are named in the title, The Decline of the Nation State and the End of the Rights of Man. So those are your two elements, the decline of the nation state and the end of the rights of man. This chapter is one of the most widely read chapters in all of Arendt's work. I can tell you that I teach in a human rights program at Bard, and this chapter is taught in like half the courses in the human rights program, right? Because it's it's Arendt's analysis and take on human rights, and it's not a pretty one. She doesn't think human rights serve much value, and uh, she doesn't think they're very successful. And in fact, I think in the most provocative reading of her text, we can even say that the rise and inevitable fall of human rights is one of the causes of or origins of totalitarianism in her mind. And so, you know, partly because of that, this chapter is is, is so widely read and, and talked about. But equally important is the decline of the nation state. And we've talked a fair bit about this. This is key to the entire book two here on imperialism. The nation state is two things, a state, and a state is a territorial entity in which all the people in it are treated equally. It's a lawful state. That's how she understands a state. A nation is, you know, as we talked about last week, a kind of pseudo-mystical tribal consciousness that unites people under a national idea. For Arendt, the great danger and the great tragedy of the late 19th, early 20th century is that the idea of the nation conquered the state, which means that the states, which were supposed to be territorial entities that treated everyone in them equally, came to be states with national peoples and minority peoples, with national peoples who had first-class citizenship and minority peoples who had second-class citizenship. And this conquering of the nation, of the state by the nation, led to the breakdown of this delicate thing called the nation state. And in doing so, it led to a series of crises, homelessness, of statelessness, 
and of refugees that raised the question of human rights with a clarity that had never been raised before. And it did so in a way that failed the test and actually accelerated and made possible the rise of totalitarianism. That's sort of the arching, overarching theme here uh, of the chapter. And so the chapter follows a two-part structure, although it's actually a three-part structure. So the part one of the chapter is called The Nation of Minorities and the Stateless People, and it's in two parts. One is on the nation of minorities, and the other is on the rise of stateless people and refugees. And then the third part of the chapter is on the perplexities of the rights of man. There's an introduction in which she contextualizes this within a particular history, and and it's not unimportant. And it's a history most of us don't know. I mean, I know when I started reading this book and teaching this book, I didn't know much about it. I had never heard of the minority treaties, and I don't know how many of you had either. But the minority treaties are a series of treaties brokered by what was then called the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations, that emerged after World War I. And after World War I, you had all these new nation states that had been formed in the in the breakdown of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. And in each of them, there were minorities. 25% of the population of all these states in the former Austria-Hungarian Empire were minorities or were non-nationals. That means that in a state like Poland, there were Jews, there were Germans, there were Russians or Slavs, there were other people who weren't Poles. And in Czechoslovakia, there were Slovaks and there were Jews and there were Germans and there were others and there were Roma. And, and these minority peoples formed large percentages of, of the population. And the question was, how do you protect them from, from discrimination by the national people that had just gotten their, their nationhood? And the hope was that these national, these minority treaties, which were forced upon these states by the League of Nations, uh, would protect the minorities long enough that it would lead to a kind of assimilation. This is an argument she makes around footnote 10 of the text. They were actually instruments of assimilation, she argues. And she says that's why they failed. They failed because the minorities actually had no interest in assimilation. Whether the minorities were Slovaks or Roma or Jews or Germans or other groups, they actually didn't want to be assimilated. They wanted to live independently. Some of them wanted their own states and they were disappointed that they didn't get their own states. Others simply wanted to live you know, as Jews or as Roma and not have to assimilate into a larger nation state. And so she says, this led to a problem, which is that the League of Nations created these minority treaties with the hope that there would be assimilation, but they sort of knew it wouldn't work. And they knew that if it didn't lead to assimilation, if the minority treaties didn't lead to assimilation, there were only one or two other options. One is the people could be expelled. Two, they could live as second-class citizens. Or three, they could be killed and liquidated. And this is Arendt's claim on, on, on page 273. It's a very clear-eyed analysis of the problem. And so she says the, the, the great powers that, that created these states in the League of Nations 
basically knew that assimilation wouldn't work, but didn't have any better ideas. And so they just pushed the ball down the road, as they say, and, and didn't solve the problem and left it to fester. And fester it did. And she says the real significance, therefore, of the minority treaties, this is on page 274, the real significance of the minority treaties lies not in their practical application, but in the fact that they were guaranteed by an international body, the League of Nations. And what this meant is that the League of Nations guaranteed the protection of the minorities. And the minorities were thus made permanent. Now, you know, what is she saying here? She's saying that because the League of Nations guaranteed the protection of the minorities and the minorities didn't want to be assimilated, they couldn't really just be killed. And they couldn't just exist as second-class citizens because they were given certain rights by the treaties. And they couldn't just be expelled. And so you created this permanent situation in which millions of people, I mean, something like 25 million out of 100 million people in these in these Eastern European states began to live as second-class citizens outside the normal legal protection and needed a global body, the League of Nations, to protect them from the national peoples in which they were. And that this was now not temporary, but was almost imagined as a lasting modus vivendi, you know, a, a way of life. She says that the minority treaties were an admission that, quote, the transformation of the state from an instrument of law into an instrument of the nation had been completed, right? This is what I said before, as the nation had conquered the state and national interest had a priority over the law, right? The state, states for her are legal entities, right? This is an important point. They treat all people within a territory equally. But when the nation has priority over it, she says, long before Hitler could pronounce that right is what is good for the German people. Here we had a situation in which the national people was elevated over the minority people and the minorities were trying to be protected by an outside force. And this was a recipe for failure. The failure happened in the form of the emergence of stateless peoples in the sense that these minority peoples either were expelled from their states or had to flee uh, as refugees. And the result is that millions of people in the heart of Europe became stateless. And so on page 276 to 277, she writes, much more stubborn, in fact, and much more far-reaching in consequence has been statelessness, the newest mass phenomenon in contemporary history, and the existence of an ever-growing New people comprised of stateless persons, the most symptomatic group in contemporary politics. So the failure of the minority treaties to protect the minorities led to the minority peoples becoming stateless peoples. And she says these stateless peoples are symptomatic, the most symptomatic group in contemporary politics. What are they a symptom of? They're a symptom of the failure of the nation state, the decline of the nation state, the inability of the nation state to balance the fact that it's comprised of a national people and that it's supposed to treat all its citizens equally. And so these people started to go on the move. They started to be expelled. They started to be, they started to leave, to flee, looking for other places to live. And you started to have a refugee problem. 
And she says on page 283, the real trouble started as soon as the two recognized remedies for the refugee problem, repatriation and naturalization, were tried and failed. So repatriation failed because, you know, the question was, you have all these refugees, how do you deport them? How do you make a refugee deportable? That's how she puts it on page 284. And she says, you didn't need the Second World War and displaced person camps to prove that there's simply no way to deport refugees because you can't send them back where they came from. The people don't want them or they'll be killed. And so repatriation fails as an option. The other option is naturalization, that you actually naturalize the refugees. And on 285, she says, naturalization, on the other hand, also proved to be a failure. The whole naturalization system of European countries fell apart when it became a question of handling mass applications of naturalization. Even from the purely administrative point of view, no European civil service could possibly have dealt with the problem. The point is, when you have 25 million refugees roaming through Europe, right, you can't repatriate them. And it's too many people to naturalize. We're having, you know, so much of what's going on in the world today around right-wing populism, around, you know, all sorts of populist movements is a response in so many ways and on so many different levels to a similar problem today. We have millions of refugees, right? Whether they be Afghans or Ukrainians or Syrians or Palestinians or others or people from Central America or, or Chinese, and they are fleeing and seeking asylum. And for Arendt, asylum is one of the core rights, one of the core human rights through, through history and one of the few rights of the rights of man that she truly recognized. And she says the right of asylum was one of the great moral ideas. It was the right of taking in a stranger. But it's one thing when you have 100 strangers or 200 strangers or 1,000 strangers. It's another thing when you have 25 million strangers or 30 or 40 or 50 million refugees as we have in the world today. And so this led to a problem. And she says the great danger you know, in this problem is that states begin to, first of all, try and address the problem of all these refugees by interning them in camps and creating, in a sense, people who are stateless, thus have no state-given rights, rightless, in camps where they are left to be invisible. And this is the, the great problem of the modern age, of an age in which we have a nation-state system that has failed. The symptom of that is the creation of millions and millions, tens of millions of refugees and stateless peoples. Within particular countries, the great danger is what she calls denaturalization, the process where certain countries actually begin to not only not naturalize new citizens, but to denaturalize them. And this began actually in the United States where certain states began to denaturalize citizens for a failure to maintain a genuine attachment to their adopted countries. Europe then began mass denaturalizations, much more than in the United States, in the interwar years. And on 278, Arendt writes, and this is, I think, one of the more important senses in her work, if you want to understand her thinking about how to identify 
the rise of totalitarianism. She says on 278, one is tempted to measure the degree of totalitarian infection by the extent to which the concerned governments use their sovereign right to denaturalization. The more you denaturalize, right, the more you're invoking an idea of totalitarianism. You're saying, we don't want people of this type at our in our country. You know, it's it's one thing to keep people out. It's another thing to take the refugees and put them in camps. But when you actually start denaturalizing them, you are legally saying that people of certain races or religions or ethnicities are not part of our country. And that for her is really the step that identifies the rise of totalitarianism. At the very end of this section, she talks about how how we see over a period even after this after World War II rising numbers of refugees and she talks about specifically the Arabs in Israel and Palestine right so after 1948 600 to 700,000 Arab refugees she's writing this book in 1950 so shortly after this happened and also in India where the partition had led to all sorts of refugees and she says for new states for these new states whether it's Israel, Palestine, or India, or or all sorts of others, this curse of stateless people, she says, bears the germs of a deadly sickness. This is 289 to 290. For the nation state, she says, cannot exist once its core principle of equality before the law has broken down. Once the nation overtakes the state and equality before the law breaks down, the nation can no longer the nation state can no longer exist. And states, nation states, therefore, lose the ability to treat stateless people as legal persons, and we start to treat them under what she calls arbitrary rule or police decree, right? We start to say, look, these are not state, these are not Americans or Germans or Israelis or Indians or whatever, and so they don't get the same rights as everyone else, and they are under a police decree. And she says it's very difficult, this is on 290, it's difficult for states to resist the temptation to do this. But more so than that, once you start treating stateless people under police decree and you realize how effective that is, she says it's difficult then to resist the temptation to deprive all citizens of legal status and rule them with an omnipotent police. And that's the transition to totalitarianism, right? That's why denaturalization is so important because what denaturalization says is there are people who are citizens who we can make uncitizens or non-citizens, and we can treat them according to the police and by decree. And once we can do that to some people, why can't we do it to everyone? And that's the material breakdown of equality of law that she says leads to the decline of the nation state. The second part follows from this, and that once you have these state refugees and stateless people, you begin to have a claim that, well, they have rights. They have human rights simply because they're human, not because they're Jews or because they're Palestinians or because they're Roma or because they're Slovaks, right? They don't have rights because of who they are. They have rights simply because they're they're human. And Arendt takes this and says, you know, what do we make of this? What do we make of this claim of human rights or the rights of man? And she says, well, 
this idea of the rights of man began in, in France with the French Revolution and the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And with the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which says, we declare that all human beings have inherent dignity and have rights. And she says, from then on, right, man and not God's command or the customs of history should be the source of law. This is on page 290. To the extent that we declare it, we make it a human claim that there are human rights. There's a number of paradoxes that begin to emerge. And that's what she calls the perplexities of the rights of man. The first paradox is that if we can declare rights of man, we can, of course, take away the rights of man, right? If we make them a human creation, we can humanly rescind them. There are a number of paradoxes, and I've, in a different article, I've labeled all, at least 10 of them, but I'm not going to go through all of them here. But the main one is the paradox of popular sovereignty. And on 291, she writes, in other words, Man had already appeared as a completely emancipated, isolating being who carried his dignity within himself, so human rights, that each person has human rights, without reference to some larger encompassing order, when he disappeared again into a member of a people. The point here is that human rights has a fundamental paradox at its deepest core, which is that it says we are all have dignity as members of the human race. Every one of us has human rights simply in our abstract nakedness. And yet, there's no more fundamental human right than to belong to a people, to have popular sovereignty, right? So the idea is that you know everyone has a right to self-determination, and that means national self-determination. And so if the Israel, the Jews want a nation state, they have a human right to it. And if the Palestinians want a nation state, they have a human right. To it. If the Pakistanis want a nation state, they have a human right to it. And if the Indians want a nation state, they have a human right to it. And this paradox is such because once you say that each of us has a human right to be treated with dignity, and then each of us has a right to be nationals, to have national self-determination, once you have national self-determination, you can, of course, Treat people in your nation state as second-class citizens, or you can expel them, you can denaturalize them, and you can kill them. And so this paradox that man exists abstractly with rights, but nowhere, and at the same time man exists as part of a people or a nation, is an insoluble part of the essence of, of human rights. And so she says, this leads to so many problems because the rights of man, she says, had been defined as inalienable because they were supposed to be independent of all governments. But it turned out that the moment human beings lacked their own government and had to fall back on their minimum rights, there was no one left to protect them. And so she says on 293, the rights of man, supposedly inalienable, proved to be unenforceable. And so she then adds to this in one of the most provocative lines in her book. She says, human rights claims and human rights societies started to look like and sound like societies for the prevention against cruelty to animals, right? Because they sat there and said, these poor people need human rights, just like this would say, these poor dogs or cats need human rights. They treated the people 
who were the subject of the rights of man, not as human beings, but as animals. And this is another paradox of the human rights. In that kind of a situation, she says that the calamity of the rightless is not that they are deprived of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or of equality before the law and freedom of opinion, but they no longer belong to any community whatsoever. So this is on page 295, and 295 to 296 may be the most cited lines of this book, at least in the world of human rights. They certainly are. What are they saying on 290? What is she saying on 295 to 296? She's saying that when the real tragedy of people who are left rightless is not the deprivation of life, that's going to shock us, right? Is not the deprivation of liberty, is not the prevention or the deprivation of the pursuit of happiness or even of equality before the law. It's that they no longer belong to a community whatsoever. And she continues, the fundamental deprivation of human rights is manifested first and above all in the deprivation of a place in the world which makes opinions significant and actions effective. What she's saying here, and again, very provocative, let's take it seriously and try and understand it. What she's saying is the most basic human right is not the right to live, is not the right to freedom, is not the right to equality. Because all human beings will die. Right? It's just a fact. And it's all human beings will have some freedom and some not freedom. And all human beings will have equality, but also inequality. The basic human right, what makes humans different from animals, is that we can belong to a political world in which we can speak and act in a way that others listen to us and make what we say meaningful. This is Arendt's deepest thought. It goes through all of her work. I will say that again. I think this is Arendt's deepest thought. It is that what makes us human is that we are meaningful beings. We are meaning-making beings. We are storytelling beings. We tell stories about ourselves. And those stories give our lives purpose and meaning. We can only tell stories about ourselves if we're part of a community of people who act and then speak and talk to each other and tell stories. And so what most matters to humanity is being part of a community, a community, a place in the world in which our opinions and our actions are taken seriously, where we have the right to speak and act and be listened to and be heard. And so she continues, something much more fundamental than freedom and justice, which are rights of citizens, is at stake when belonging to the community into which one is born is no longer a matter of course, and not belonging no longer a matter of choice, or when one is placed in a situation where, unless he commits a crime, his treatment by others does not depend on what he does or does not do. The point is, if we are put into a concentration camp and made invisible or a refugee camp or an internment camp, we lose the human right to speak and act in ways that are meaningful because no one hears us. We can be disappeared. We can become what she calls rendered into holes of oblivion. That is the true deprivation of human rights. 
as long as we are in a place where we have a community, if we are deprived of freedom, we can fight. We might die, but at least we die fighting for our human dignity and thus we live a meaningful life. And so she says, those people who are refugees and caught in camps and deprived of a community, they're deprived not of the right of freedom because they can still resist, but she says, but they're deprived of the right to action. Not of the right to think because they can still think, but of the right to an opinion, namely that their opinion be heard and listened to and responded to by a community of others. And it's this point, she says, that we become aware of the existence of a right to have rights. A right to have rights. And that means to live in a framework where one is judged by one's actions and opinions and a right to belong to some kind of organized community. The right to have rights is not the right to live. I know that's going to upset a lot of human rights people. And a lot of Arendt scholars don't want to admit this and they argue against this and they try and resist it. But that's what she's saying. The right to have rights is the right to live in a community, in a framework where one is judged by one's actions and opinions. It's the right to also the right to fight for one's freedom and to die for one's freedom. And she says, we only become aware of this right to have rights when millions of people emerged who had lost and could not regain these rights, namely refugees. So refugees and stateless people are the symptomatic people of the modern world because they show, as I said earlier, the failure of the nation state, the decline of the nation state, but also because they make us aware that the fundamental human right is the right to live in a framework of visibility, of meaningfulness. And then she continues, man, it turns out, can lose all the so-called rights of man, so-called freedom, life, etc., without losing his essential quality as man, his human dignity, as long as he still has the right to speak and act, he can still be a human being. Only the loss of a polity, she says, expels him from humanity. And this is really the radical, as I said, I think this is one of the deepest and most core thoughts of all of Arendt's writing that goes through all of her work. Because in her last book, like The Life of the Mind, she's going to say that thinking is not about truth, it's about meaning. All of her work from this to the end is about how action is about what does it mean to live a meaningful life? And she asks this question, how can the right of man to humanity and dignity be guaranteed? And she says, it's by no means certain that it is possible. The only way is to fight for it, is to act. And this is, and this is what she is here, I think, identifying and what's so important about this chapter. She says, a world government will not solve this problem. It actually makes it worse because if you have a world government, if that one world government becomes bureaucratic and totalitarian, then there's no space for action. That's on 299. And so the danger of stateless refugees is that as mere humans, as people who are outside of a community, who are reduced to their naked mere existence, they are almost an example. Well, I'll take out the almost. They are an example of what it means to dehumanize human beings. And the great danger then arises from the existence of millions of refugees in the world who are 
thrown back on their natural givenness who are nothing but mere animal beings who lack, she says, the human quality of differentiation, which comes from being citizens of a commonwealth. Now, people could say, oh, well, she's therefore dehumanizing refugees. I, I don't think so. She has a great essay, We Refugees, in which she says, you know, the refugee must become the avant-garde. They must cease to be a mere person and act and become political. But she recognizes that the existence of masses of refugees brings into the world widespread examples of people who are human beings who are in danger of or being dehumanized. And that the rise of this is that in a global, universally interrelated civilization, this is the last sentence of the, of the chapter, can produce barbarians from its own mist, midst by forcing millions of people into conditions which, despite all appearances, are conditions of savages. This is a brutal, a brutal indictment of the world system that allows millions of people to exist in refugee camps to exist in dehumanized situations, to be almost turned into savages. And when we treat these savages with the means in which we treat savages, bureaucratic police actions, we begin to treat human beings under the rule of the police. This is what opens the door for totalitarianism which is going to be the next chapter, chapter three. I'm going to stop there and understand that there's a lot to talk about in this chapter. And it's a, uh, it's a very controversial and provocative chapter. And I uh, look forward to the discussion. Uh, Jerry. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, now I can, Jerry. Roger, we live in a time, I believe, where there are probably more refugees than ever before in the history of our world. This is a book about the origins of totalitarianism. It seems to me that the fact that there are refugees is not necessarily an indication that we're going to have a totalitarian government. Because as you say, that is more of a question of denaturalization. That has not come yet. Nevertheless, if you're going to get to the elements of, uh, and as Aaron says in the last chapter of this book, that the real problems of our time will come really only after totalitarianism is done and finished. We don't, I don't think we have to look for the arrival of a new totalitarian government that may or may not happen. But there's a serious problem if it does not happen now with this element of this massive number of refugees. Now, you mentioned her article on uh, the essay, the first thing she ever wrote in English, by the way, We Refugees. And I think you said something about that if you're a refugee or came down to this, to me, what I understood, you were saying that the uh, cure for statelessness 
which a refugee is by definition, stateless, then you have to act. Well, you know, that is easier said than done, I would say. And I think someone like Jimmy Baldwin found his own people, black people, I mean, in, in America, in a state rather close to being refugees, not not denaturalized, certainly not. But nevertheless, uh, and I know I know Jimmy felt that way himself. Now I don't know. I don't know if I have a real question to you, but I but I would like to hear your reaction to the if we have today something like an origin of totalitarianism, this massive number of refugees. And certainly nobody acts today. I mean, that's a thing of the past. Uh, where are we? You know, what, what, what is the relevance of this book today? Hmm. Thank you, Jerry. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like everything you say, I, I fully agree with. I think the great problem that we are faced with today is the problem of, of refugees. You know, I, I teach a course on citizenship and, you know, most of my students start the course and really do, you know, first of all, they, they don't have much patriotism in being American. Right. And then they want open borders and they want, you know, letting all refugees in and we struggle through the course and we read our rent in the course and we struggle with the question of, can you have a meaningful human community without something like a closed community in which you control who comes in and how they come in and and what would it mean to do away with that the the way that capital can be rerouted across the world now in seconds or milliseconds new factories can be built all over the world capital is global and yet we still have a nation state based system that doesn't allow for global migration. And so the result is that we have incredibly unequal distributions of people around the world, uh, where we have rich societies and poor societies. We have free societies and non-free societies. You know, capital allows this to happen. And yet we and we allow for free mobilization of capital, but we don't allow free mobilization of of labor or or people. And um this is I think one of the greatest challenges and paradoxes of our time. Is there an origin of totalitarianism in it? I mean, we can look at the fact that I think something close to somewhere between 30 and 50 or 60 million people are refugees in this world. There's a lot of people living in conditions that we would call something like concentration camp conditions, uh, whether that's in Gaza or in Syria or in Myanmar and, and, and outside of Myanmar or, or elsewhere or in China, this is, or on the U S border, this is happening more and more. And as it's happening, you're starting to see an emboldened rhetoric of bureaucratic police rule that happens almost naturally in these kinds of situations, because what are the alternatives? And this is, I think a problem that we're facing. Uh, in a in a very serious way, and I, I think 
sadly, no one that I know of has come up with a solution that seems to work. That doesn't mean there aren't better or worse ways to respond or more ethical ways to respond, more political ways to respond. When I mentioned the the essay, We Refugees, you know, I was talking about that last paragraph, which to me is one of the most pregnant and suggestive paragraphs in her work, where she says that, you know, we refugees, you know, as she says, we don't like being this, we don't like being that. We've generally been silent. We've generally almost committed suicide. We've been miserable. But we can, as refugees, become the new avant-garde. We can become the new political subject. We can begin to organize and act and claim our rights. And this is, I think, the most some of the more interesting work being done on this question is what would it mean not to treat, think of refugees within a framework of human rights, right? Which dehumanizes people and which um, treats them like savages or animals, gives them food and keeps them alive, but tells them they have to stay where they are and be good, you know, docile people. What would it mean to, I don't know, give them, give them weapons, give them uh, money and opportunities to organize and both militarily or not militarily fight for their uh, existence, create, take, take the state that their refugee camp is in and turn it into a state, you know, build a, build a new, build a new nation state uh, where a refugee camp was or a free city or something like that with federal rights. I guess the way I, I approach some of this is to say that the, the human rights mentality has largely not succeeded. In fact, 70 or 80 years of human rights work has led to the multiplication of refugees, the multiplication of kind of de de dehumanization of ever more millions of people every year. You know, my friend Jerry Joey Slaughter, a number of years ago now, wrote a book called Human Rights Inc., you know, about how the human rights largely serves the human rights agencies and not the people that it's supposed to serve. You know, we can get into arguments about that ad infinitum. But I think ultimately what Arendt at least provocatively suggests is that if we really want to uh, address the problem of, of refugees, it's that we have to allow the refugees to address the problem. And that may mean building their own free cities or states. It may mean fighting. It may mean dying. It may mean, I don't know what. We're not the people to say it. That's how I read Arendt. I, I know it's a, a pretty radical reading and I'm not sure everyone would agree with it, but I think it's, it's, it's out there. And to me, it's probably the only way to, to address this problem. But it would lead to a lot of, obviously, insecurity and a lot of pain. But it may be the only way to to actually humanize people who have been made stateless and and largely dehumanized. Dina. Hi, quick question about the source of law that Arendt discusses in the last third of this chapter. Um, she rules out nature, she rules out history. Um, and she settles on 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 humanity, which she says is an inescapable fact at this point. 
I'm wondering if you could elucidate that a little bit. I'm not sure uh, what she means with humanity. Um, she also rules out God as a source of law and mankind on 298, 299, 300, and so forth. But on 298, she seems to settle on humanity and says that, you know, um, it, it's clear that it, she doesn't mean a sense of enlightenment, uh, humanity in the sense of enlightenment. But um, what exactly does she mean? Yeah, it's I, a great question. And I think it's one of the questions, it's one of those questions that RN scholars have largely not thought very much about. But I think she means when she says the right of every individual is on 298 to belong to humanity should be guaranteed by humanity itself. It is by no means certain whether this is possible. Right. Or contrary to the best intentioned humanitarian attempts to obtain new declaration of human rights, right? It should be understood that this idea transcends the present sphere of international law. And for the time being, a sphere that is above the nations does not exist. Furthermore, a world government would not be a good idea. So, so what does she mean? If not a transcendent world government, if not declarations of human rights from international organizations, what I tried to argue and, and what I believe is that what she means by humanity is the fundamental human endeavor, which is to be meaningful and to tell stories and thus to live in a community. And so uh, I take it by humanity, she means the willingness to and the risk of acting and speaking in public in ways that matter in trying to build uh, a human world. That's the only hope she holds out here. Forgive the quip, but does that mean that our reading group is a source of law? Well, I mean, our reading group is 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 a is a group of people from around the world who come together and and think. And to the extent we build a community, and I think many of us have, we have built certain norms and certain institutional ways of acting that at times are pushed against. I mean, I don't mean to call him out, but Stephen just in a very, I think, thoughtful and important way, you know, pushed against some of those norms. And I appreciate that. Others have as well over the years. And I have struggled to the best of my ability to um, listen and hear and talk and yet maintain my sense of what this community is. Now, to some degree, let's also be honest, this is a community with someone in charge you know, better or worse, right? I, I run, <laughs> I, I have the, I have the ultimate say here in a way that some people like, and some people don't like. And so, you know, that's a little different, but uh, yeah, I think this, I think our, our reading group, you know, for many of us is a community that makes and gives meaning to some of our lives in ways that matter, allows us to speak in public, allows us to be heard, whether in the chat or, or on here. And it humanizes us. Now, it's not a political community in the sense that we're not deciding on who builds roads and how many teachers to have and who builds schools or do we spend money on a new school or a new hospital or a new weapons system, right? We're not, that's not the kind of community we are. We're an intellectual community or a community of friends who share an interest in thinking about the world through Hannah Arendt. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And it can open us to the world and make us meaningful, but it's not a it's not a political community. 
uh, not in that sense. And I think that's a big difference. And so well, we have. I, I was just trying to understand how she links it to a source of law. Well, we're not a political community, but if we were a political community, right, we would have to agree on what the laws are, where they come from, and how we agree on them. But we're not generally a community of that sort. As I said, there has been some negotiation. You know, over the years, I've received many complaints slash suggestions slash whatever of asking us to change certain norms of the group. And we have at times, and we have a, you know, all of you get when you join this group, you get a a letter explaining what we think the norms of the group are. That has changed and developed over time through interactions amongst our community. So what she has in mind is not a world government, but maybe something like a criminal court, international criminal court in The Hague or international law or something in that direction. She's very skeptical of international organizations in general. I, think, I know, I know. Uh, because they, you know, they, they have a tendency to become bureaucratic. And if they get controlled by the wrong, you know, the international court is great until it's controlled by people like President Xi or Putin. Or in their view, until it's controlled by the United States. And so the problem is if you have an international court and the wrong people control it, depending on who you think the right or wrong people are, there's not place, there's no place to hide. And so uh, you know, the the beauty for her of more local federalist politics is that there are always opposing powers from which you can oppose a power that you think is too powerful and too centralized and wrongheaded. Uh, listen, this was really fun for me. Thank you. And I really appreciate all the different comments. Um, this is a provocative text and a provocative chapter. And, and I am glad there was pushback on it today. So thank you very much. Enjoy reading Han Arendt. Have a great and very happy new year. And I will see you all again on January 12th for chapter 10. Enjoy reading Han Arendt. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>